Welcome to Boobs Aren't Worth Dying For, the podcast dedicated to integrative health and healing from breast cancer and breast cancer treatment using the best of conventional and natural medicine. Your host, Deborah Beaumont, is an advanced practice nurse, functional medicine practitioner, and fellow breast cancer survivor. Welcome back to today's episode. This is Deborah Beaumont. I am interviewing an author today who has done extensive work in the area of breast cancer, has written a book I think is going to be very informative and very useful to those of you dealing with breast cancer or looking to prevent breast cancer. My guest today is Susan Wadia Ells. She is author of the book, Busting Breast Cancer. It will be coming out in September. She is an author, she is an activist, and she is empowering women. She aims to change the culture around breast cancer on women's behalf. She has written about breast cancer and very importantly about the use of birth control pills, which is something that I think applies to many women and we all need to know about, but a lot of people are not talking about it. And it just affects our overall hormone balance. What I really was drawn to Susan was her points of political action. She says, take off the ribbon, stop running the course, keep your vitamin D above 60, get rid of carbs, practice medication, and stop suffocating your cell metabolism. So with that introduction, welcome, Susan. Thank you for joining us today on the podcast. Well, thanks, Deborah, for having me. You bring an angle to this that I think is really important and something that many women feel called to when they go through this process, which is um, being an activist. Um, and I, do you identify yourself as a breast cancer activist? Mm, uh, well, by definition, since I've written this book, you know, I, I lost a, a couple of friends to breast cancer and I got really mad. My way, or one way that I enjoy doing is, is writing. I, I usually write a lot of political 1,000 word or less columns right. about feminist issues, about political issues, autobiographical issues. And that's really all I had done in terms of published writing other than an anthology. But I just got so mad at um, the fact that so many women were developing uh, breast cancer and uh, and then so many of them seemed to be dying from it even when they found it early they would find it it would come back again and so I thought well let me just um, take a lot of time as much time as I need and try and figure out why we're spending so much money on breast cancer but why so many women especially in the US continue to develop the, the, the disease and continue to die from it. so yes and so now I guess I'll become more of an activist now that the book will be out there next month. There's seven political action steps in there that I'm really urging women as groups of women to take on, as well as the five simple steps that the book talks about to prevent breast cancer. I know that your work was um, highly influenced by the work of Thomas Seafried, who was maybe one of the if not the first, one of the early researchers who began looking at breast cancer as a metabolic process. And um, 
uh, I, I certainly subscribe to that particular philosophy. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. The first five years of this 15-year sojourn during the book, all I could find were statistical studies. They call them epidemiological studies, looking at women who did this versus women who did that. And, you know, I called them peanut butter studies. No doctors at that point understood the full biological theory behind the, the development of that first cancer cell. And so all these epidemiological studies could do is say, well, we think if you eat a lot of peanut, women who eat a lot of peanut butter don't get breast cancer. Women who hate peanut butter get a lot of breast cancer. And I'm being funny here, right? So if you want to prevent breast cancer, eat a lot of peanut butter, but we don't know why. And that's for decades until Dr. Seyfried published his book in 2012. That's all people knew how to do to prevent breast cancer. Well, they tell us don't drink alcohol, exercise more, but they don't know why. I was getting very bored with this research. When you say epidemiological study, you're talking about studying women who are already experiencing it. And it's kind of like going back and retroactively looking at like, what connections can we make? Right. With women who used of, of the group of women who were 20 to 40, who have used birth control drugs for more than five years, they have 6%, 12% more breast cancer than women who have never used birth control drugs. So that would be an epidemiological study. That right. They looked at a group of women who never had birth control drugs and found their cohorts or their peers who had always used birth, birth control drugs and then looked at the different outcomes in terms of breast cancer. So that, that's a basic epidemiological study. There are things that you can do moving forward. Right, but doctors right now, oncologists, breast surgeons, they don't know exactly how that first cancer cell is developed. And that's what Dr. Seyfried finally pieced together and put in that book that, you know, he, there were probably 15 or 20 or more scientists over the last 100 years that had discovered one thing about cancer, a second thing about cancer. And he was the first one to take the time and put them all together. And he's a geneticist. He studied metastatic the genetics of metastatic cancer cells for decades. And he finally said, you know what? This cancer is not a genetic disease. It's not spontaneously developing in somebody's gene because we don't know why. It's developing because the power batteries, an individual who is, has developed cancer, they've suffocated the power batteries, which are the called the mitochondria. In, the, in this case, for it's breast cancer, in their breast cells. And once you suffocate those little power batteries, we have like 80 to 100 of them in each breast duct cell and breast lobe cell. Once you suffocate those guys, they should die, but a lot of times they don't because the mitochondria, it turns out, way back in prehistoric time, used to be single-cell fermenting bacteria. They love to do nothing, and they can only thrive on glucose and on glutamine. And, of course, glucose we know too well. You know, it's in everything from every piece of fruit to carrots to peas to flour to grains, etc. And glutamine is a very, very prevalent amino acid. So it's, more, it's easier to stop the glucose feeding a cancer cell than it is the glutamine. But that's another story. But at least we now know that if women can stop 
suffocating the mitochondria, the power batteries in their breast cells, then they won't get breast cancer. You know, it'd be very difficult for them to get breast cancer. You can't get breast, you can't get any kind of cancer if your cells are pumping a ton of oxygen and are not suffocating. So, so that's what's made my book, Busting Breast Cancer, possible. I now have been able to show the research. I haven't shown the thing. I'm just a reporter. But, you know, if one of the causes of breast cancer is uh, viruses, specific viruses that attack the mitochondria and suffocate them, then if you can avoid those particular viruses, you're going to do well, you know, or if we know that um, adipose tissue, a person's excess fat tissue, is pounding their mitochondria 24-7 with heavy exhaust that comes when your body is burning glucose. So people who are have excess body fat, they are they're pumping out this toxic kind of estrogen and they're pumping out inflammatory enzymes 24-7. So that's why women who are overweight or obese um, have a th to start out with 30% more breast cancer than women who are a healthy weight. And so that that's the first, then I found that the most important thing I could say to women, if they wanted to prevent not just breast, especially breast cancer, I didn't do my research on the other cancers, is to lose every piece of excess fat. And then there's a way of doing that that makes it very easy or much easier using a ketogenic diet, intermittent fasting. And of course, in this country, 60 to 75% of American women are overweight or obese. So it makes so much sense why we have one of the highest, if not the highest, breast cancer rates in the world. And then, of course, there are four other ways that a woman can protect her mitochondria. You had mentioned early on genetics. This comes up so often in the world of functional medicine and cancer. And, and it comes up because doctors are telling women this. And we have the ability to test for certain genetic markers, like BRCA genes, for one. In a small percentage of women that are BRCA positive, it increases their risk of breast cancer because of the genetic, genetic malformation. However, I think the genetic component is really overemphasized too often. And, and many women are, believe or are led to believe like, well, you know, I, I've got these genes. There's nothing I can do about it. And I think that that's what the work of Dr. Seafried, you, myself, you know, other uh, practitioners in this area of functional medicine are really trying to educate women about is that the metabolic process says that there are things not only that we're doing, such as diet and nutrition and exercise, we're exposed to many toxins beyond our control, although becoming aware of um, eliminating that is an important part of reducing your risk. But what this is, is an action plan for not only preventing breast cancer, but improving your recovery from it. The, the true presentation of breast cancer because of genetics is actually less than 10% of the population. They have found that most of it comes from lifestyle factors that we're talking about today. And that's why I think Dr. Seafried's uh, metabolic approach to cancer is so important to understand. 
what are the things that you think are most important for women to know? You said there are four other ways, and I know that um, you have uh, five action points. Well, in step one, which I just mentioned, is to lose all the excess adipose fat. And part of, of step one is for women to learn to question authority. Because oh, most women are overweight right now because they're eating nothing but carbohydrates. And that's, it's not their fault. That's why, that's because the food pyramid that's put out by the U.S. Department of Agriculture is basically controlled by the food industry. So for the last 20 years, they've been pushing seven servings of grains and, you know, starch um, and not having people eat a lot of fat. And we're now finding that like prehistoric men or Paleolithic or whatever, they ate mainly fat. The Eskimos eat mainly fat. You know, you don't need, in fact, the body needs no carbohydrates at all to exist. It just needs fat and moderate protein. Um, so that's step number one. And, um, and the step number two is the vitamin D3. And that's really important to get as much vitamin D3 as you can from, from the sun be that indoor tanning, outdoor tanning without burning, and to get your D3 up even higher by using supplements. The important thing is to have a D3 blood test twice a year in the summer and in the winter, because you will have a higher level usually in the summer than in the winter because there's less sun in most places in the winter. So, and it's really important to push your practitioner, your medical practitioner, to make sure that happens. They'll tell you it's too expensive. They'll tell you. And again, they're getting a lot of their guidance from the National um, Academy of Medicine, which is run by the food and the pharmaceutical industries. So my book tries to show how all of these authorities that are telling most women, what they should and shouldn't do about breast cancer are getting it all wrong. And that's one of the, or if probably the major reason the U.S. has the highest rate of breast cancer in the world. So that's the third one, the second one. The third one is no progestin drugs. And of course, we learned this back in 2002 when the um, Women's Health Initiative, uh, when part of that, one of the studies within that initiative was, was halted like four years early because women who were being given the progestin menopausal drug were getting something like 25 or 26% more breast cancer than the women who were not taking the progestin drug. So they quickly shut that study down and at that point, I think it was Pfizer at that point lost their shirt and they ended up selling their company. But because millions of women, as soon as it was announced publicly that progestin increased your risk by over 25%, millions of women stopped. These are postmenopausal women. They stopped Ooh. filling their prescriptions for the progestin. Um, to clarify this, I want to make sure we're referencing the same thing. These were the drugs that were commonly prescribed to help women ease menopausal symptoms, correct? Yeah, they still are prescribed. Premarin yeah, and, and um, Prempro, and there are a number of them. And, and, and the sales are beginning to go up again right. because women have forgotten about this and the pharmaceutical drugs are in control. And right. so they will push it and they influence a lot of our doctors. A lot of our doctors get their medical information from pharmaceutical industry publications or from National Academy of Medicine. And that is funded 
by the pharmaceutical companies. It's, it's, I was fairly amazed when I, that's why it took me so long to do this book. I kept unraveling another layer of onion skin. So I don't know if most people are aware of this, but actually I've experienced this in my doctor's office where I come in and there's a drug rep sitting in the lobby or sitting in their inner office waiting to talk to the doctor. And they're there to tell them about the latest drugs. They're there to give them free samples. You know, I, I'm not out to bash doctors. Doctors learn a particular methodology and they learn a particular approach. And then they get busy, like we all do. And they don't have time to sit down and read every exactly. study that's put out. So they rely on these people for an inordinate amount of information. You know, and these drug reps are saying, well, my company came out with this latest blah, 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 and this will be great for your clients. And as long as a drug rep can say, well, it passed, you know, phase three clinical trials and it's the latest thing since sliced bread, doctors are like, great, it'll, it'll give me something to give my client, you know, my patients because, you know, they just keep asking me and I don't know what to tell them. When I've gone in personally, I've had doctors ask me as a functional medicine practitioner, like, what do you think of this? Or what do you think about having soy in the diet? Or what do you think about D3? They're asking me because they know this is my life's work, you know, but they're just getting bombarded with kind of the same information that the average public is getting bombarded. Absolutely. Precisely. Precisely. Yeah. If there's one thing you take away from this podcast, go and get a vitamin D test. It's easy. It's affordable. Every doctor can order it even though they might not want to. And as you said, uh, most women are horribly health-threateningly low in vitamin D. I found out about this from my traditional oncologist. She was like, has anybody, you know, tested your vitamin D? And I was like, no. And it came back at 17. And we're talking about an ideal level of 60. And there are very few people that I know that have even come back with a vitamin D greater than 30. That was from a traditional oncologist 11 years ago when I was in breast cancer treatment. I now see a different oncologist. And just one month ago seeing him, he said to me, well, there's no double blind, you know, study that says vitamin D above 30 is going to increase your chances. And my response was, this is not esoteric medicine. This is now part of the mainstream. And there is studies that show D3 is protective breast cancer cells. And if you are not the person that can support me in that, then I need to find somebody who can. And that's going back to what you're saying about that action position of, you know, not challenge your doctors, but question them and make sure they're, they're providing you service and make sure they're responsive to you. Too often they're not. My, my chapter th- uh, three on vitamin D3 has dozens and dozens and dozens of research papers cited um, in terms of breast cancer and vitamin D3. And if you're in treatment, they're recommending you keep it at 80 and above. And if you're um, just a regular woman, you know, 60 and above. And one of the reasons for that is it turns out that many, not all, but many breast cancer tumors grow much, much faster than colon tumors, than liver tumors, et cetera. And if you don't have your D3 up there when those first cancer cells start to form in your body, then I call it like your D3 Wi-Fi system. It cannot come in there and zap them. So remember with cancer cells, 
when they start to suffocate those little power batteries in the cells and the breast cells, they should die. I mean, our, all of our cells die eventually and then regenerate, etc. But the problem with cancer cells is we now understand, thanks to Dr. Seyfried as of 2012, when the mitochondria, instead of dying, begin to suffocate, that's when the cancer starts. And that's when they switch. They no longer want any oxygen. No, thank you. All they want is glucose that the person is eating and they want glutamine and the person has tons of glutamine. So the treatment is, is interesting what they're now working out around the world in these metabolic cancer clinics is they're keeping people, everybody's losing weight, getting optimal health. It's hysterical. It's really good. Instead of being beaten up by the cancer treatments, metabolic treatments make you healthier. So they, they take all the glucose away from you and you learn to eat fat and you learn to do intermittent fasting. And then your cancer cells are so weak, they put you in a hyperbaric oxygen chamber and they zap your whole body and your healthy cells are so happy to have all this oxygen. And your cancer cells are just desperate for any kind of fuel and all of a sudden they can't handle all that oxygen. And I guess there is, Dr. Seifert and others are finding some uh, generic drugs that are really good at you give the person once they're, they're free of glucose, no glucose in the body. Then they give them small doses of these anti-glutamine drugs with the idea of it's not enough to hurt a healthy cell, but it's enough to hurt these panicked, starving cancer cells. And that's how they're stopping, well, they're, they, they, call, they call it managing. This is how that they are managing metastatic cancer cases in Istanbul and Hungary and Alexandria, Egypt. Individuals are doing it for themselves because they've given up on the toxic treatments. Number four is no more mammograms. It's unnecessary. And I, and I describe four national studies from Canada, from uh, the Netherlands, from, from Scandinavia, two from Scandinavia, that show, these are massive national studies that show that it's not worth anyone having a mammogram, plus who wants to have a mammogram. They don't save lives. They, in fact, you know, can they cause what they call overdiagnosis, and that leads to overtreatment. And once you start treating a person for breast cancer and you're poking the tissue, you're poking the cancerous tissue or the DCIS, you have the ability. Uh, the possibility, and it's highest in breast cancer more than other types, of, of the doctor seeding a cancer cell into connecting it with what they call a macrophage, part of the immune system. And the macrophage can go anywhere in the body. And they, they prefer in breast cancer to go to the lungs, the liver, the brain, and the bones. And that's why most women who have metastatic breast cancer are dealing with one or more of those um, distant uh, growths. So this is all amazing new news. And, and I'm assuming that Dr. Seifert will be winning the Nobel Prize within the next few years. I mean, once more people know about the metabolic theory, you know, you're going to have people going to Dana-Farber and saying, I don't want you to do a biopsy on my boob. No, thank you. You know, have you seen these studies? Um, I just want metabolic therapies. And Dana Farber will say, at this point, they would say, well, we don't do that. 
and then the person says, I'm not coming in here. You know, your, your track record stinks. So, I mean, we're not, they're not even publicly telling us the number of women every year in the U.S. who are developing recurrent metastatic breast cancer. They record it. Every physician has to record that to the state cancer registries. But I've never seen a state cancer registry or a national cancer institute that has, has ever uttered a whisper about how many women are developing metastatic breast cancer every year. Well, unfortunately, even in the breast cancer world, there is far too little interest in metastatic breast cancer. I think there's an inherent bias in the medical world, but even in the breast cancer world, unfortunately, the attitude is like, well, once it's metastatic, then there's nothing to do. And I, and I think for women who are struggling with breast cancer, it can be very scary to think about metastatic disease. But well, I think there's a they great make deal all to their money. They're making all their, and more and more money is coming from um, metastatic drug cancer drugs. And they do not want to share. I have decided because they have the numbers. They don't want American women to know that, I don't know, at least 30%, maybe 50%, of all women who were treated for early stage for an early stage breast cancer tumor go on within two months, two years, 10 years, two decades to develop recurrent metastatic breast cancer. They are ashamed. They have to be ashamed of their record. They focus instead on tamoxifen and arimidex because it'll cut recurrence. But you say, well, what is the recurrence? And they say, oh, we don't know. Please, please. They know. And so I think the women who are organizing around metastatic breast cancer, they have to, one, watch out. They don't get co-opted by the pharmaceutical companies because they need to basically share and push for the numbers for the state cancer registries to tell us what's the recurrent metastatic breast cancer rate in Iowa versus Utah versus Pennsylvania? What's Dana-Farber's recurrent breast, metastatic breast cancer rate, Sloan Kettering's? Every doctor has to report it so they know. I uh, spent uh, 20 years in San Francisco. And um, when I was in graduate school, they were doing a lot of studies because Marin County, which is a, a pretty, uh, generally speaking, affluent. Sure educated, health-conscious community had a had one of the highest rates of breast cancer. And they were like, how could this be happening in such an affluent, educated community? Now, I remember being approached when I was in graduate school to fill out surveys and studies, you know, because I, my, I went to graduate school in Marin, in San Rafael. We're all trained to operate on the same information. And it takes a true effort to follow a different path. But there's also a lot of pushback in the medical world. You bring up ketogenic diet, and I can tell you a lot of doctors are going to lose their cookies. You know, oh, ketogenic is bad. Oh, ketogenic is this. Ketogenic is that. There's a lot of misunderstanding. They don't want to run vitamin D tests. They don't want to talk about toxic overload. You know, they want, as you said, they want to go to what they're familiar with, which is prescriptions. And that's a whole complicated world of, well, for one thing, you know, I don't think doctors are evil. I, most of them went into this because they want to help people. But there is also a profit margin to relying on these drugs. The pharmaceutical company is one of the biggest corporations or, or entities in this country. It's a big profit-making machine. And it does influence what is recommended. 
I, I left San Francisco and went to Hawaii and the, the place I was had very few resources. And I remember talking to an oncology nurse who said that um, she was having a true ethical problem because she was treating a cancer patient. The doctor wanted to provide a certain chemo regimen, and she thought the man was too debilitated to tolerate it well. And the doctor uh, was insistent because he was getting a percentage from the pharmaceutical companies for prescribing that particular chemotherapy routine. And so he was going to do it, you know, regardless. And she actually said, I won't infuse it. He came in himself to infuse it. I mean, I'm not saying that that is the primary motivation for a lot of doctors, because I, I think doctors, there are many who are well-meaning, but there is this intricate tie with the pharmaceutical company that there are so many threads of it that when you unravel it, like you said, I think it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Well, I think you'll find that medical schools still are not teaching the metabolic theory of cancer. They're just assuming that dogma that cancer, of course, is a genetic disease. We can't tell you exactly why Jane got breast cancer and Sally didn't, but we're sure it's a genetic disease. And so like I like to describe it as they're focused on the different exhaust molecules coming out of the back end of the, of the vehicle, when the reality is, as Dr. Seifert has said, you need to hold back the two fuels that are fueling that vehicle. And the two fuels that are fueling the cancer cells, all cancer cells, are glucose and glutamine. If you can focus on those two, you don't have cancer. And that's what we're finding out in the metabolic cancer clinics that are now cropping up mainly in Eastern Europe and the Middle East. It would be lovely if they could do it here, but the problem is they have something called the Commission on Cancer as something they call the standard of care. And the Commission on Cancer is run by the U.S. Medical Associations. And they establish what you must do if you are diagnosed with X level of Y breast cancer, then you have to have a biopsy and a this and a that and a that. And if a doctor doesn't do it, then he or she can lose their medical license um, and their insurance doesn't then cover them. Um, Now, if the patient is above 18 and says, no, thanks, doc, I'm going to go put myself on a ketogenic diet. I'm going to get a ketogenic dietitian. There are many of them developing now, which is great. So you can have, you know, you can do it long distance and learn how to measure your glucose index every day to see how much glucose is in your body versus how many ketones. And um, anyway, I I describe a lot of the theory in in chapter one, but let's finish the other simple steps, the prevention steps, right? Basically, you don't want any mammograms. It's radiation that creates inflammation. Smashing a person's boob creates inflammation. It also apparently could bust a tumor if one existed. And cancer cells in a tumor are very loosely held together. I mean, the last thing you want to do is is touch that beehive. And so we're recommending that, and it's not just us, functional medicine, as you know, the importance of women touching their breasts, of doing regular breast exams, of them and their partners enjoying life and, and doing breast massage, to really be so familiar with your breasts as you are with your nose. Too many women, I'm afraid, especially as they get older, do not touch their breasts. They disassociate. 
And so they have their mammogram every year so they can feel, quote, safe. But then that runs into many, many problems. And much more important now with new technology to have clinical breast exams and they can use a new elastography technology that can figure out the firmness and the softness. And one would be a, a cyst and the other would be a tumor. You can also do thermography, which is wonderful for really early, not to detect tumors so much as to screen for inflammation inflammation in the breast and in the body. And that's your first step toward cancer. You're on your way to suffocating those mitochondria. So if someone can just, and, and it's safe for premenopausal women as well as postmenopausal. So if every woman can go get a thermogram every year, and if the insurance companies would just pay for the damn things, instead of just pushing mammograms down your throat, then women would have They'd have a, a warning. They'd be saying, oh, my heavens, look at this. I have inflamed breasts. I have an inflamed body. I've got to get off of my glucose, stop the carbs, and get on moderate protein and high fat and intermittent fasting. Life can get much better faster. Lots of options now instead of mammograms. And then the fifth um, simple step is detoxification. And the first thing to detoxify, and it's sometimes the hardest, is your brain. You know, the you get tense, you don't have any money, you have a lousy uh, home relationship, you have a lousy work relationship, you're terrified about everything in the world, you're filled with anxiety. You're a great candidate for developing cancer because the cortisol is one of the most inflammatory, not a normal level, but we're talking an imbalance, too much cortisol that never stops. So I've, you know, I've had women say, oh yeah, my first breast cancer event was uh, two years after my first divorce. And my second breast cancer event was two years after my second divorce. So, you know, in many cases, women have to really, really get serious about doing an hour a day of whatever works for them from yoga to meditation, to walking in a quiet space, to whatever, to, you know, saunas, whatever will help lower the cortisol levels. I mean, they're as bad as, you know, high estrogen levels, as you were mentioning, or not necessarily high estrogen so much as imbalance. People always say high estrogen. Apparently, it's the imbalance. If you have when you have equal amounts of um, of estrogen and progestin, they apparently connect with one another and they don't hurt anything. They provide you with what you need in life. But if you have more of one than the other, then that excess stuff becomes toxic to your mitochondria. It all focuses on the mitochondria. What is hurting your mitochondria in every day in your everyday life? Is it is it not or you know non-organic heavy pesticide fruits and vegetables? Um, is it uh, pumping gasoline every day and the fumes are going into your nose? Are you working the night shift as many nurses must do? Thank heavens. And then what happens is they don't make enough melatonin, which is another way of increasing your your immune system. And so without being asleep at night, they're not making melatonin, they're making themselves much more you know, open to developing the breast cancer. And wealthy women have, you mentioned Marin County. I have like a 40 minute talk on why wealthy women get more breast cancer 
or used to get more breast cancer than poor women or working class women or middle class women. And that's because if you think about it, their lives are filled with antiseptic pesticides. They've got housekeepers, they're going to the country club, they're having three showers a day with chlorinated water coming down on them in the heat. They, they dry clean all of their clothes, so they open up their closets and all the dry cleaning perchlorates come out at them. You know, they go swimming in the swimming pools and they're more, I mean, everything they do, more working class, middle class, we don't have money to have a housekeeper come in, we got to do it ourselves. So that increases our immune system because we're dealing with all the dust and everything, but also we don't have all of these antiseptic cleansing things around us all the time. So you can go on and on, you know, about why I mean, also Marin, those women were very good. They went to their OBGYNs and they were told, take this progestin menopausal relief drug, Sarah. It'll make you much happier. Or if they were younger, they'd take their daughters to the practitioners. They'd be told, oh, your 13-year-old daughter has bad acne. We can put her on birth control drugs, even though she's not sexually active yet, but it will clear up her acne. So they're pumping all of these drugs into wealthy people that poor people can't even afford. God, this was about 10 years ago, and I'm older than I'd like to admit. My birthday is Thursday, and I'm in my late 50s. Um, thank you. Um, I'm a flaming Leo. Um, <laughs> I read an article that said women that were just one generation behind me. So I read this when I was like 50, and so women in their 40s. You know, so that would be women in their 40s and 50s now. That was the first generation, the use of birth control pills for any number of conditions, not just birth control for acne, for regulating periods, you know, for any number of reasons. But that was the first generation of women who had never even established their normal hormone cycle in their body because birth control pills were being prescribed so early that it started altering their basic physiology before they were even of what we would consider normal maturation to start their menses. So basically, women who are about 50 years or younger, they have been so influenced by birth control pills used for any number of reasons that they haven't even established their regular cycle in their body. So when it looks like they're wanting to come off of it or change it, it becomes that much more complicated because then their body is like, well, what do I do now? And, and I know that you've worked, um, uh, this has been an area of interest for you, this, this relationship between birth control pills and um, cancer. I think you're absolutely right. Uh, we've documented in the book, you'll see that as birth control drug sales increase, the rate of women under 50 developing breast cancer increased each year. So it's, it's a direct parallel with one another. Increased sales of, breast, of birth control drugs with increase in uh, premenopausal women developing breast cancer. That's absolutely true. Breast cancer, even now, is considered uh, by many doctors like, oh, that happens when you get older. I personally know many, many young women in their 20s and 30s who have been diagnosed with breast cancer. There is a greater and greater increase of young women being diagnosed with aggressive breast cancers. Um, and that's, a, that's one of those misconceptions I think we need to look at head on, you know, sort of like there's 
nothing we can do about metastatic breast cancer. Women need to understand that more and more women are seeing breast cancer in their 20s, 30s, and their childbearing years. I know three women personally who actually found their breast cancer after during their pregnancy and after they had their child because there's such hormonal swings that it it kind of exacerbated that underlying condition. And I just I just want to call out that that misconception because I still think that we're still kind of in the dark ages about like the general public what they think they know about breast cancer and what they don't. And that's just what, something I want to you know just state head on. Yeah, well, chapter nine in my book does nothing but talk about um, the increase overall in breast cancer, both younger and older women. Chapters seven and eight, uh, one looks at triple negative breast cancer, which has an um, overrepresentation of younger women in there. And the other looks at the uh, women, the few women, but it's, it's more like um, oh, 5% that were, are born with a mutated BRCA gene. And what we're realizing, again, I enjoyed reading, it was fascinating, I think is the better word, reading these epidemiological studies, cross-cultural ones about women with the BRCA, uh, the mutated BRCA gene in North America versus women with the mutated, born with the mutated BRCA gene in, um, uh, in Hungary. And and in the U.S., by the time you're 70, like 70% of women will have developed breast cancer. In Poland, when, when you're 70, 49% will have developed breast cancer. So that tells us right there that it's, it's as much environment as it is uh, genetics. Right. And again, there's only worldwide a 40% penetrance of BRCA, uh, which means that only 40, if you take all the women in the world, China, Africa, you name it, and you figure out how many of the, who has the BRCA gene, the mutated, either BRCA1 or BRCA2, only 40% of those women will ever develop breast cancer. And maybe I think it's like 30% will develop ovarian cancer. But if we're talking about breast cancer, only 40%. So it means that having the mutated gene, the broken gene doesn't mean you're going to get breast cancer. It means that something is happening from that gene. It's not protecting you. You're suffocating. Usually a healthy BRCA gene is going to, it's called a tumor protection gene. So if, you're, if your mitochondria starts to go south and wants to start suffocating, the BRCA thing will come in and help repair will help um, stop that from happening. It, it, it's interesting that um, we have such a difference between the, the BRCA women, the number of women in Poland versus the U.S. And they're finding out that all mutated BRCA genes are also not the same. Some will not touch the mitochondria and others will. So it, it's, I think they make a big deal about women being tested. And everyone thinks 90% of the world has the mutated BRCA gene because it's a $3,000 test. And of course, with all of the breast cancer happening historically and currently, everybody has a family history of breast cancer. I, I defy you to find somebody who doesn't have an aunt, a cousin, a sister, a mother, a grandmother who hasn't had breast cancer. It's hard to find of the many areas that I'm very passionate about, toxins, environmental toxins are one of them. It's very interesting that many toxins have been banned in Europe 
that have not been banned in the United States for financial and big business reasons. Um, in Europe, many of these chemicals that we're routinely exposed to in our home are, are being banned, glyphosate being the main one, which is actually sprayed on all of our crops. Uh, so it, it directly, I mean, just, just think if, if glyphosate is used as a weed killer, what do you think it's doing to ourselves? And just that, something as simple as that, of becoming aware of toxins, can make a fundamental difference. And and I just think that it's interesting that you bring up that it's different in different countries because yeah, um, yeah. there are different regulations and and big business um, operates differently. And I and I I know that a lot of very interesting work in the area of uh, CBD is prohibited in this country for political reasons, but a lot of that work is coming out of Israel. Becoming aware of, of the many influences that operate, I really think is something that, that uh, not only all of us should do, but I know that a great portion of uh, women going through breast cancer have felt so unempowered that, that that really, they have an authentic voice that they can bring forward when they talk to people about this and really address some of these misconceptions, address some of these just outright lies sometimes. Right, but you know, Deborah, it's much harder for women to question authority than it is for men. What I say in the book is because the authorities out there, in North America at least, are misguiding women more than they're guiding them in terms of effective breast cancer prevention. Women have got to learn to ignore that voice of authority in their brain that tells them, no, 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 you can't do that. No, no, no. Boys don't have that. And, and it goes back to the whole feminist psychology that came out in the 70s, why women are so much more fear adverse than men are. But if we, if we keep listening to authorities, we're going to keep getting more and more breast cancer. And the industry, of course, will keep making more and more money, which is what they would like to do because they're an industry. What women have to do is to start making sure that our elected representatives, and I have seven action steps at the end of the book. I think it's chapter 10 or maybe chapter nine. And, uh, and the action steps uh, basically are very clear. And so you can have a local breast cancer support group. You can have a, a, a larger breast cancer support group that chooses one of these and goes hammering one of the federal agencies or their elected representatives to change these different regulations to make um, it easier for women to prevent breast cancer. Well, for women who have listened to my uh, podcast, there is um, a podcast that I did about a breast cancer survivor, Nancy Capella. Her story, um, unfortunately, I, I need to tell her story because she has at this point passed away from cancer or, or complications of cancer treatment, actually. But she had um, routinely gotten her breast, her breast mammogram every year. And then six or seven years into it, they found that she had like stage three advanced cancer. What they found is, and what she learned is that it was highly related to breast density. Mammograms are not really good at picking up cancer in dense breast. And her question to her practitioners were, 
like, why did no one ever tell me this? Because it's a, it, if you've ever had a mammogram, it's actually a piece of information that doctors have. Her story is beautiful, and please go back and listen to it. But she actually became a political activist. And um, last year, they passed legislation that um, uh, it was passed by Diane Feinstein that actually all it did was require it was a law that was passed that requires doctors to tell you what your breast density is. That it, it, that's all it was. But she became a political activist that has really affected change. And I think we all have that ability. And I so appreciate you outlining this for women because this is the antidote to the helplessness and overwhelm that we're all kind of indoctrinated in. When we look at breast cancer, it's so frightening that women just sort of check out. And I really appreciate your work to teaching women how to check back in. Well, I think what women need to realize is most oncologists should be frightened about breast cancer because they have not been taught how the first breast cancer cell develops, why Cynthia got breast cancer and Sally Lou never did. And once you have an oncologist... Once you have any an oncologist treating a disease they don't understand, you're in danger. And that's why it's time now for American women especially to question every bit of authority out there from American Cancer Society, National Academy of Medicine, Susan G. Coleman, even Planned Parenthood. Planned Parenthood doesn't have one negative thing to say about birth control drugs. They tell women the 12 ways they will benefit from taking birth control drugs. And someone needs to start talking to them and get that changed. They don't have one research study. They don't have one word about the increased risks of developing um, breast cancer from any kind of progestin drugs. And again, that research only was published in 2010. And that has not been publicized. Just like the number of recurrent uh, metastatic breast cancer cases in the U.S., they count them. They know everything about recurrent metastatic breast cancer. Let me tell you, the, the market research reports, you pay them 6000 bucks, they'll tell you everything you want to know about the number of women per state, the type of recurrence. They know everything because they're planning billion-dollar products. So they have to get their investors to give them millions to get their billions. So, um, and it's, and it's, it's, you know, it, 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 uh, so, so women have really got to understand they have to question every authority out there, even those we've been told should be our best friends. And in many cases are our best friends. I mean, I, I uh, went to a Planned Parenthood clinic for years when I lived in Vermont and I loved it. And I was so happy they were there and they were, doing wonderful family planning, et cetera. But the corporate group, for whatever reason, and maybe they can tell us, if you go to their website today, they don't mention one adverse effect that a woman could get from taking birth control. Well, more than that, you're not going to get that from your doctors either. You know, it, well, I, think, I thought Planned Parenthood was women's best friend. Well, you know, so, I, so I there think we there's are. one thing that... Um, not only am I a breast cancer survivor, but I'm also, <laughs> I'm a doctor's worst nightmare. I'm one of those bossy ICU nurses that <laughs> I, I, I take nothing from doctors. And I'm not adversarial, but I ask questions. And if there's one thing that I can say as a nurse, 
based on everything that I have experienced professionally and personally. If there is one thing any woman can do, it is educate yourself and ask questions. And if you have a doctor, this is my soapbox, but if you have a doctor that does not answer your questions, yells at you, dismisses you, calls you crazy, throws pill bottles at you, demands that you know they know best, that you just need to follow blindly, then fire them. There are other practitioners, there are other doctors to find. These are all stories that are firsthand stories of, of clients that I have worked with who have questioned some of these hormone blocking drugs, who have questioned ketogenic diets. These are all responses from doctors. As my functional medicine teacher says, there is no way we would hire, say, a plumber to come into our house. You've got a leak in the sink. And he says, I, I'm not going to fix the leak. I'm just going to replace your entire plumbing, plumbing system. There is no way you would continue to hire that person if all you wanted was for them to address this thing. Because we have that that idea that we're hiring them to provide a service. Women need to adopt that and believe that when you see a doctor. We are hiring them to provide a service. And to greater and lesser degrees, they do that. That's why there are other practitioners, naturopaths, and, and myself as a functional medicine practitioner. I don't tell women what treatment to do, but I empower them to talk to their doctors and find one that is informed, is in sync with them, and supports them learning about their own Right, health. right, right. And Deborah, I um, think that's what your book is doing. Yes, I, th- I hope so. Certainly that's its purpose. And before we um, end this interview, I wanted to just remind people that if you go to bustingbreastcancer.com, as of right now, and we're in August now, and the book um, is expected out, the paperback, expected out the end of September, um, you'll be able to get it for a month on our, on our website, bustingbreastcancer.com. And then after that, you can get it on our website or Amazon or independent booksellers. You name it, it will be out there. Just hopefully people, and they can also get the ebook as opposed to the paperback. That's really great. So we'll um, I really like to end podcasts to um, yeah. or to conclude our, our time together by really giving women resources. And so yeah. once again, I, I want to... Um, uh, I'll have you repeat the website. It's it's www. So it's bustingbreastcancer.com. Right. Okay, good. And I know that you have a newsletter. There are resources. This is all uh, evolving work. And I, and I really think that you, you have a really important voice that um, I think can really empower women to really start approaching this differently for themselves. Good. I'm glad you feel that way. Thank you. So in conclusion, I just want to say, um, for me, coming back to, to the podcast, we've talked about a lot of things today, and I think um, many things will, will be fleshed out uh, in Susan's book. But, you know, we've talked about things, you know, we've talked about ketogenic diets, and we've talked about metabolic approach to cancer, and we've talked about vitamin D and birth control pills and hormones. And I know that this is a lot of information to, if, if you're new to this, to be thrown at you. But this is what this podcast is about. It is to educate you. And I can tell you, I'm, there, I'm going to have podcasts on all of these issues. So if you've listened today and you're like, oh my God, I didn't take notes, you know, rest assured that this is what this podcast is for. This is about education. 
And it's about empowering you. Instead of feeling overwhelmed, just understand that there's so much that you can do and you can take it a piece at a time. But I, I really want to say that I think Susan's book is an excellent resource and kind of can be a primer to like just have an idea of where to, where to start. If you've got questions about this, you can certainly tune back in to future episodes of the podcast. Some of these issues are covered in previous episodes of the podcast. And you can certainly contact me. I have resources and I actually work with clients. You can uh, contact me not only to find out about uh, my own services, but you can also find out more information about Susan. Uh, You can go to www.boobsartworthdyingfor.com. And um, you can contact me by email that way. And there will be show notes and uh, you can download this podcast through iTunes, through uh, YouTube, through many sources. But you can reach me at uh, RadicalHealthRN at gmail.com. If you have questions or want follow-up, I respond to um, all of those. So thank you for joining us this week. And Susan, I just want to... Make sure, you know, like in this this last minute, is there anything more you feel you want to say or, or emphasize from our well, if, interview? If people go to bustingbreastcancer.com, they can, if uh, they will share their email address with us, then they can download the forward to the book by Dr. Seifert and the introduction to the book. So they can get a real good taste for the book just by sharing their email so that we can notify everybody when the book is actually in existence. Great. Great. Well, thank you all for joining us for today's podcast. And as I said, tune in for more information or reach out either to Susan or myself. So thank you all for joining us. I'll see you on the next podcast. Thanks for joining us today. If you have comments or questions about today's episode, or how functional medicine can help you in your own recovery from breast cancer, you can contact Deborah at RadicalHealthRN at gmail.com. You can leave positive feedback and subscribe for future episodes on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Check out Deborah's website at www.boobsaren'tworthdyingfor.com for show notes, educational info, and other important links. Until next time.